You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 133, The Peekskill Raid. Last week, I went over all the confusion in London and with the British leadership over who planned to attack what and where in 1777. This week, the British start moving out of their winter quarters and begin their first tentative action for the spring of 1777. As I hope I've stressed enough times by now, British military leaders had long held that the key to victory was cutting off New England from the rest of America by taking control of the Hudson River Valley between Quebec and New York City. By the end of 1776, the British had a large army in Quebec and an even larger one in New York City. That the two armies had not created this link so far was due primarily to the heroic efforts of General Benedict Arnold. Remember, just after Lexington and Concord, Arnold scraped together an army and along with Ethan Allen, captured Fort Ticonderoga, thus denying the British that important launching-off point into the Hudson Valley. Arnold then attempted to take Quebec. The Continental Army's lack of resources and a scrappy last-minute defense by Scottish immigrants in Canada prevented Arnold from taking that stronghold before British reinforcements arrived. Even after the British deployed an overwhelming force in Quebec and pushed the Patriots out of Canada, Arnold still managed to control Lake Champlain with a small fleet, effectively preventing the British from retaking Fort Ticonderoga throughout 1776. To protect the Hudson Valley, the Continentals focused on securing Fort Ticonderoga to prevent an invasion from Quebec toward New York. Well, Focused on securing the fort may be an overstatement. Everyone thought it was an important fort to hold, but after General Arnold left in late 1776, the defensive plan for holding the fort was, in hindsight at least, a clearly wrong-headed approach. And that's a topic for a future episode. For now, I'll just say that the Continentals tried to improve the fort's defenses but did nothing like Arnold had done to prevent them from reaching the fort at all. The American intent, though, was to hold the British at Ticonderoga and prevent them from moving into the Hudson Valley from the north. On the southern end, the Continentals did little to prevent British General William Howe from continuing up the Hudson River after his victory at White Plains, New York. In part, this was because Howe was not in any hurry to move upstate in late fall, when the wilderness of upstate New York in winter would probably do more harm to his soldiers than the Continentals or the militia. Besides, General Washington had retreated back through New Jersey toward Philadelphia. 
in the fall of 1776, it made much more sense for General Howe to chase Washington rather than venture further upriver, where American General Charles Lee commanded a large force to oppose them. Recall that after Howe's British and Germans pushed the Continental Army out of New York City, Washington had deployed an army to the north under Lee's command, while Washington led the forces who retreated toward Pennsylvania. As Washington's army dissolved, he begged Lee to move south and join forces with him. Lee kept putting him off until the British captured Lee in December. At that point, the remainder of the Northern Army did move south to assist Washington with his counterattack that began at Trenton. As Washington fought to take back most of New Jersey over the rest of the winter, there was not much of anyone to defend the Hudson Valley. General Arnold was off sulking and contemplating resignation because Congress had promoted several junior officers over him. General Philip Schuyler still served as the commander of the region, but his political fighting with General Horatio Gates had left the command a complete mess. Their attention focused on Fort Ticonderoga, which the British would have to take before moving south. They really didn't focus on an attack from the south into Hudson Valley. General Howe's army controlled the land for miles surrounding New York City. He was fighting with the Continentals in New Jersey over the winter, but had successfully captured Providence, Rhode Island without a fight and felt confident that he could move British ships up the Hudson River whenever he wanted. So, with spring approaching, it was time to consider the 1777 British offensives. By this time, Lee was a prisoner of war, and the remainder of his forces, as I said, had joined Washington down in New Jersey. As I discussed in detail last week, in the spring of 1777, the British planned once again to push into New York from Canada, this time with General Johnny Burgoyne in charge. General Howe was more interested at this point in taking Philadelphia. He did not think he had enough troops to do that and mount a full-scale invasion of the Hudson Valley. Therefore, he had no intention of doing the latter. As I said last week, such a move would only contribute to Burgoyne's glory by supporting his primary offensive from Canada. As commander of North American forces, General Howe was not terribly interested in playing a support role for a subordinate. While a full-scale invasion of the Hudson Valley from the south was not a serious consideration, the British did want to test the resolve of the Continental and militia forces in the area. Washington, of course, would want to oppose any British movements. But at this point, he was not quite sure what the British might do next. The British had a force in Rhode Island that might move up through New England. Washington had recaptured most of New Jersey over the winter, and it was also quite likely that Howe would try to take back the state and continue his offensive across New Jersey into Pennsylvania, and from there he could capture Philadelphia. So while the Americans hoped to prevent a British incursion into upstate New York, coming up with the soldiers to defend that area was a big problem. Washington kept the bulk of his troops in New Jersey to prevent the move on Philadelphia, with the other significant force further north at Lake Champlain and Fort Ticonderoga, 
preparing to oppose the British push from Canada. The Continentals had created a supply depot at Peekskill, New York, about 20 miles north of White Plains, along the Hudson River. There, area mills produced leather, wood, flour, and gunpowder. Local slaughterhouses also provided meat for the Continental Army and Patriot militia. Washington thought the area would prove a good location for supplies, since it was in between the two expected British invasion zones that were likely for 1777. If the British attacked the Northern Army at Fort Ticonderoga, the supplies could be taken north to the soldiers defending upstate New York. If the British launched another attack across New Jersey in pursuit of Philadelphia, those supplies could be moved south in support of that army. The Continentals had not built any serious defenses at Peekskill itself. Until February 1777, General William Heath of Massachusetts had commanded from Peekskill. However, after his disappointing raid on Fort Independence, which I discussed back in episode 128, Washington had written him a rather scolding letter. Heath requested and received a leave of absence. He returned to Boston and shortly took over there after General Artemis Ward finally retired. The Peekskill command fell to General Alexander McDougall. You may recall that McDougall had been an active member of the Sons of Liberty in New York City and played a role in the pre-war battle at Golden Hill. That was where the British soldiers and Sons of Liberty had a street riot over the city's Liberty Pole. See episode 32. McDougall had received a general's commission in the Continental Army. We last heard from him in episode 112, when he was serving under General Washington at the Battle of White Plains. At Peekskill, McDougall commanded the area with a force of about 250 soldiers, most of whom appeared to be local militia. McDougall's small independent command at Peekskill kept a check on British incursions up the Hudson River. Over the winter, Washington deployed a few New England regiments there to be used as reserve reinforcements either in upstate New York or in New Jersey as needed. There was no notion that the Americans would launch a full-blown offensive against British-controlled New York City. The Continentals, as I said, were focused on trying to resist wherever the spring offensive might be executed by the British. New Yorkers had attempted to block British ships from moving upriver by placing a chain across the Hudson River at Fort Montgomery which was also under McDougall's command. This chain was a few miles further upriver from Peekskill, so it would not play a role in this raid. In any event, it was not going to prove very effective. It actually broke once on its own during the winter and had to be repaired. When the British actually did move upriver later in 1777, they had no problems disabling the chain and continuing on their way. I mention this only to note that the Americans were at least concerned about the British moving up the Hudson and cutting off New England from the southern and middle states, even if they did not garrison large numbers of Continental soldiers here. As soon as the ice melt made river travel safe again, the British did move up the Hudson River. In March, Colonel John Byrd took a fleet of 12 ships transporting over 500 soldiers upriver to Peekskill. 
On March 23rd, the British landed at Lentz Cove, about a mile and a half south of Peekskill. They deployed their 500 British regulars and at least two cannon unopposed. The British force set fire to houses near where they landed. They also used their cannon against a number of structures in the small village. The initial goal seemed to be to terrorize the local citizenry. The American general, McDougall, realized that he was outnumbered by about two to one. He pulled his soldiers out of Peekskill and back to a hill known as Fort Hill behind the town. As he pulled out of town, McDougall set fire to some of his own supplies in order to deny them to the enemy. The only way he could win, though, given his numbers, would be to provoke the British into attempting a charge up a hill where the outnumbered Americans would have a better position. The British commander, Colonel Byrd, though, was not terribly interested in confronting the Continentals. His troops took control of Peekskill and continued what the Americans had started, destroying the food, supplies, and equipment left in the town. The two sides did fire on each other with their cannon, killing one or two on either side with an occasional lucky shot. But, as I said, the British were not intent on driving off the Americans. They were there to destroy the supply depot, which they did. They burned the mills, workhouses, barracks, and storage houses in and around town. They carried away some materials, but given the limited space on their ships, they destroyed most of what they found. Even though the British did not seem preparing to take the hill, the cannon fire was enough for McDougal and the Americans to retreat back another two miles or so to Gallows Hill, where they were out of range of the British cannon. Meanwhile, New York General George Clinton put out a call for militia in the region to muster. By the way, George Clinton was a distant cousin of British General Henry Clinton, but he was a firm patriot. He was mostly a politician who would soon become governor of New York and would eventually serve as vice president under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. At this time, though, he was a New York militia general. It would take time to get the word out to local militia and for them to muster. In this sparsely populated region, they could not muster within hours like they were able to in New England. There were smaller numbers of soldiers ready to go a few miles upriver at Forts Montgomery and Independence. Fort Montgomery was the larger fort several miles upriver. The Continental officers at Fort Montgomery did not want to send any large numbers of men from their forts. If they took the fort garrison from the fort to Peekskill, the British could simply climb aboard their ship again, sail upriver, and capture the fort defended by only a skeleton crew. The Continentals wanted to wait for militia to arrive and occupy the fort before sending any soldiers to Peekskill. Fort Independence was closer to Peekskill, and it was not much of a fort. It had only been built a few months earlier, just north of the town. And just to avoid confusion, this is not the same Fort Independence near New York City occupied by the British, and which General Heath had failed to capture back in episode 128. This was a totally different fort in a different place that just happened to have the same name. If I want to make things even more confusing for you, some of the primary documents refer to Fort Independence as Fort Constitution, 
which is also the name of about a dozen forts at least all up and down North America. This Fort Independence near Peekskill was not only closer than Fort Montgomery, uh, it was not a terribly well-built fort that the Patriots really worried about occupying and defending. General McDougall ordered the commander, Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett, to leave just a handful of soldiers and bring as much as he could of the New York 3rd Regiment. Willett did not wait for any reinforcements. He set out as soon as he got the message with about 80 soldiers from his regiment, expecting more to follow later. Several hundred New York militia had heeded the call and began marching directly toward Peekskill to join the battle. However, most of them would not arrive in time to fight. The day following the British landing, the regulars deployed an advance line about a mile northeast of Peekskill to prevent the Americans from moving forward on them while they occupied the town. Colonel Willett and his militia from Fort Independence arrived that morning joining General McDougall's men on Gallows Hill. From the hill, McDougall and Willett could observe the British plundering the area around Peekskill, burning farms and supplies. Willett noted that about 200 of the British were far enough separated from the main force that they might be attacked. He encouraged McDougall to order a strike on this separated force. McDougall agreed, and sent a small group against the British left flank to distract them, while another force under the command of Colonel Willett tried to sneak up on the enemy's right flank and attack them from there. They lost the element of surprise when the inexperienced New York militia got nervous and fired on the enemy from too far away to do any damage. Their shots only alerted the British to their position and gave them more time to react. Realizing they had lost the element of surprise, Willett gave the order to fix bayonets in preparation of a charge on the British lines. Before they could charge, though, the British retreated back to their main lines, telling Colonel Byrd that the woods were full of rebel soldiers. The British lost 13 killed or wounded in the skirmish. The Americans reported two killed and four or five wounded. By this time, it was dusk. The British could not tell whether there would be a larger attack they remained on alert for a night attack that never came. Overnight, British Colonel Byrd prepared to withdraw his troops back to their ships. The British had destroyed the American supplies which had been their objective. Rather than wait to see if the enemy could collect more militia from the area and mount a larger attack, the British simply packed up and went home. That was probably the right decision. Over the next few days, hundreds more New York militia would descend on the area, ready to contest the British who had departed. Continental General McDougall indicated in his reports that the British left sooner than they would have liked. There was still a fair amount of supplies that they had not destroyed. The Continentals recovered a portion of their supplies and regained control of the area. So in the end, both sides claimed victory. The British fleet moved back downstream to report a successful raid. The American leaders reported successfully chasing off the British after two days. The fighting at Peekskill was not a terribly significant battle by itself, more of a skirmish. There were less than a thousand troops engaged on both sides combined. Casualties were pretty minimal, and the amount of damage to Continental supplies was annoying, 
but not fatal to any larger strategic plan. In fact, far more significant for American supplies, the same month of this raid, a ship arrived from France full of equipment for the Americans. The Peekskill raid proved more of a test by the British to see the resolve of New Yorkers further upriver to challenge their movements. If the British wanted to control more territory further upriver, they would have to come in much larger numbers to overwhelm the enemy. Following the raid, the British did not attempt another raid all summer. They did send one small fleet in April, but as it turned out, they only sent that as a distraction to get the Americans to deploy more forces to the Hudson Valley while the British launched a real raid on Danbury, Connecticut. The Danbury raid will be a topic of a future episode. The launch of a few troop transports up the Hudson River turned out to be nothing. It would not be until October that they would attempt another serious move up the Hudson. The raid also should have been a warning to the British. General Burgoyne based his invasion of the Hudson Valley on the premise that a majority of the citizenry would turn out in loyal support of the British as they made their way from Canada to New York City. The Peekskill raid proved that there was no evidence of a loyalist majority waiting to show itself. In fact, quite the opposite. Perhaps the British thought that an even larger force of British would bring out the loyalists, as it had in New Jersey during the earlier invasion there. If so, it was a fatal error that, as we will see in future episodes, put Britain on the road to defeat. Next week, the British launch a raid in New Jersey, resulting in the Battle of Boundbrook. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I want to say thanks to Trey Nance for joining in support of the show at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. This is the highest level of support that I've created for people who want to help support the show financially. I really want to keep this show free, so folks like Trey who can step up and contribute deserve all our thanks from everyone who enjoys listening to the show. I also want to remind everyone that History Camp Philadelphia is coming on May 2nd, 2020. If you have an interest in history and can make it to Philadelphia, you really should attend. It's a great event with talks from all sorts of amateur historians. I will be giving a talk on an event that has nothing to do with the revolution at History Camp this year. 
It's on a local issue that I find rather fascinating. I will be talking about the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. I think this largely forgotten event has some interesting parallels to today. The riots were largely the result of new immigrants to the city and the local hostility toward them, and concern that their religion was incompatible with democracy and was going to destroy America as a free society. I am, of course, talking about the Irish and Catholicism. The violence of that year led to two important developments, the creation of a professional police force in Philadelphia and the birth of the parochial school system for Catholics in America. It should be a real interesting talk, and if you come to History Camp Philadelphia this year, you'll get to hear me present it live. History Camp's about all eras of history, and not limited to this local area either. If you have some special interest or an interesting history story that you want to present, you're welcome to come to History Camp as a presenter. This is an event by amateurs for amateurs. You just need a passion for your topic, no academic or professional credentials required. If you would like to present, go to historycamp.org slash presenting for more details. Today I talked about the British raid on Peekskill, New York. This was the beginning of the British Army's transition from winter quarters into their spring offensives in 1777. It was an opportunity to start testing the enemy and probe for weak spots. I'll be discussing a few other raids over the next few weeks as the British start testing American defenses while waiting for their commander, General Howe, to reveal his overall strategy for the 1777 fighting season. The raid itself was not part of any larger offensive, but mostly a chance for young officers to show their initiative and fighting ability with a raid on an enemy supply depot. But control of the Hudson Valley had been a long-time obsession for British war planners. The notion of cutting off New England from the rest of the continent was thought to be an important first step of crushing the heart of the rebellion. Of course, in practical terms, this never seemed realistic to me. Even if the British did secure a corridor between New York City and Quebec, those many miles of wilderness could not block travel between New England and the rest of America. If they put in place isolated outposts along the Hudson Valley to secure this area, those only would have become targets for the Continentals, much like the outpost at Trenton. The hope of British leaders was that once they had established a presence, the locals would flock to the king and provide local militia support to protect the king's interests in the region. In hindsight, this really seems hopelessly unrealistic, but that was the goal. Because the British wanted the Hudson Valley, the Americans naturally wanted to deny it to them, which is why they had a chain of forts from Fort Ticonderoga all the way down to Peekskill. I also mentioned that the Americans made several attempts to put literal chains across the Hudson River to block British ships. A chain in combination with a nearby fort to blast away its ships that would have to stop and disable the barrier before proceeding seemed like a pretty good defense. If you want to read more about the defenses of the Hudson River, then you'll want to take a look at today's book recommendation, Chaining the Hudson. Fight for the River in the American Revolution by Lincoln Diamond. As you might guess from the title, the book focuses on the Lower Hudson Valley and the American defenses there during the Revolutionary War. 
This is a fairly short book, first published in 1989. The author, Diamant, was an amateur enthusiast of the American Revolution who spent a great deal of time in the Hudson Valley. He was a former New York ad executive who wrote on a wide variety of topics, from golf jokes to stamps to broadcast communications. But half a dozen of his books were about the American Revolution. Mr. Diamond passed away over a decade ago. For a good look at the Hudson Valley in the Revolution, check out his book, Chaining the Hudson. For my online recommendation this week, I want to recommend another history podcast. It's called History That Doesn't Suck. The host, Professor Greg Jackson, is covering all U.S. history in chronological order. He covered the American Revolution in just over a dozen episodes and is currently hip-deep in the Civil War. It's a good, interesting overview of early American history and is told in an engaging way. Recently, his podcast topped over 1 million downloads, so congratulations, Professor Jackson. If you haven't listened to it yet and are looking for more of a history podcast fix, you may want to give History That Doesn't Suck a try. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.